0: First Peter chapter four. Welcome to our Bible study of the book of First Peter. We're moving right along, starting with chapter four tonight, and hopefully, probably within the next three to four weeks, we'll be finishing up First Peter, and then Brantz will be coming in and doing a uh, review of the first test of the New Testament, as he did with the Old Testament. So you can look forward to that, be praying for him as he prepares for that. I titled the message tonight, Living According to God in the Spirit. Living According to God in the Spirit. Last week, we were challenged uh, in, by 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 15, to set apart our heart for Christ. Set apart our heart for Christ. In this, he touches on a subject that has separated those who claim to be followers of Christ and those who really are. First Corinthians 6.20 says, For you are bought with a price, therefore... Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Notice the first and the last phrase of that verse. For you are bought with a price, last phrase, which are God's. So we're God's. We're, we're not our own. We are his. He has purchased us with the blood of Christ. We're not our own, for we are his, and his, our heart's desire should be both to serve and to glorify our Lord and our Master and our Redeemer. So as we noted last week, if we're yielded to Christ and he's ruling our heart, then we would be better able to endure suffering. Okay, That's one of the goals of being in that close relationship with Christ. We can endure suffering and we can be a better testimony obviously of our faith. We are to live with God's will as our highest priority and by his grace, uh, be ready to give an answer or an apologia as it says in the Greek, an apologia, an answer for the hope that of his promises that we hold as truth. So that's our desires to be so close with him to have that, that principle of his word in our hearts and minds that we can give an apology. We can, we can give a statement of faith saying what we believe. And that's, of course, what we're doing in CLA is to studying the precepts of God's word, to have sound doctrine, to be able to explain what we believe to people. And that's not something we do automatically. Obviously, as we know, we're fighting the flesh. We don't do it automatically when we come to faith in Christ, but we are to be diligent. In fact, you might remember this from Brant's message a few weeks ago. We are to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God a workman who does not need to be ashamed, sitting on our haunches doing nothing. You no, know, we're to be rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay, that means what? We're studying the word of truth. We're diving into the word of truth. We're finding out what it says and why it says those things. So there's a, a, a responsibility on us that we don't just automatically become scholars, obviously, when we become a Christian, but we have to study to show ourselves approved. So that's, that's a challenge for us. Next we noted that we are to testify of the hope that it was in us, not with brashness, not with pride, not with arrogance, but with meekness and with fear. Recall the words of our Savior in Matthew eleven twenty nine: Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. We are to imitate our Savior in that. We're not to be overwhelming people. We're neither to frighten people or to browbeat people or to trick people to come to Christ. But rather, we're to, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and with a gracious spirit, we are to persuade them to flee from their sins and from the wrath of God against those sins and to trust in Christ alone who can redeem them and make them acceptable in God's sight. That's, that's our goal. That's our desire. And if those who oppose God the gospel criticize us, well, let it be. Okay, Let it be our, because of our constant godliness, not because of our inconsistent life. Okay, If they're going to criticize it, let it be because we are living for Christ. We are showing them that we're a Christian. If it, is, if it is God's will, we may suffer. Let's face it, we, and we can, we can read plenty of testimonies throughout history, and even now, people who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. But let's be sure that if we're going to suffer, we're doing it for good and not for evil. And Peter points that out in verse 17 of chapter 3. So Peter then pointed us to Christ as our example of suffering for good. And note that important word back in that text in chapter 3. We noted the important word "once," which indicated that the ultimate nature of his sacrifice that he died once for all. The Jewish priests had to offer their sacrifices year after year, constantly, for the sins of their people, but Christ appeared once at the end of the ages, as the scripture says, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, that we might be justified. That we might be justified in the sight of God. And his sacrifice was that of the just for the unjust, or the righteous for the unrighteous. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that was an unbelievable transaction that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, we who were unrighteous, we who were deserving of His wrath, we might become the righteousness of God in Him, as it says in second Corinthians 5:21. The just for the unjust, oh, how can it be that Jesus, the Savior, did suffer for me? The righteous one did suffer for me. He died, as it says in verse eight, and he might bring us to God. He might bring us to God. We could not bring ourselves to God. We could not bring ourselves to God nor did we desire to do so, but Jesus brings us back into that intimate relationship with the father that Adam lost. We're accepted only in him. Not only that, but even as he was put to death in the flesh, he was yet made alive by the spirit. So one day we too shall leave this flesh behind and our spirit shall rise to eternal life with him. Finally, last week, we attempted to clarify a somewhat challenging passage there in 1 Peter 3, 19 through 22. But the key point to remember as in as we've said before, in all texts as we're reading them, is the context. We need to read the context to make sure that we're understanding what the overall theme is, what's, what's happening there. Uh, Peter's talking about suffering for good or for evil in chapter 3. Also, he's constantly pointing us to the work of Christ and our redemption, not only as an example of suffering, but also to look beyond the suffering to the victory that we have over death in him looked at a couple plausible explanations for that text uh, that Peter is talking about in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. Most likely the scenario is that Peter is saying that Christ went to preach victory over the fallen angels or the spirits of men who had rejected the message of salvation during the days of Noah just prior to the flood. In other words, Christ's message to these disobedient spirits, as he calls them, Peter calls them, was that they were justly suffering for their evil deeds. They were justly suffering. This is in line with what Peter had been saying, actually, in chapter 3, verses 12 and verse 17. And as for the reference there in verse uh, 21 about baptism, we noted that its proper understanding is based upon what he is referring to in the latter part of verse 20. No one and his family were not saved by the flood, but it was a means of God's judgment, not a means of salvation. Okay, They weren't saved by the flood. Rather, the flood saved them from being swept away by the flood of human corruption that had then engulfed the world. Thus, the antitype, which is baptism, the antitype that Peter speaks of here in verse 21, is that the waters of baptism portray the washing away of the believer's sin, just as the flood cleansed the world of wickedness at that time. The true cleansing, of course, is via the blood of Christ, and baptism is the outward expression of the inward work of grace that produces a good conscience towards God, as as Peter says. Peter concludes chapter 3 by focusing once again on the work of Christ and his triumph over sin, the grave, all disobedient angelic authorities, including Satan, and his resurrection guarantees ours. His reign at the Father's right hand includes us. His triumph over Satan is our triumph. And using these thoughts as a launching pad, Peter is going to begin chapter 4. With another of those frequent if-then statements or precepts that i've mentioned before so that's kind of what we're leading into he's going to he's kind of charging into this chapter with this if-then statement so we'll begin looking at the first couple of verses of this chapter and we'll, we'll look at it under the title of living in the will of god living in the will of god so in chapter four, four peter's focusing on two responsibilities two responsibilities for all christians To whom he is writing, and that includes us, not just those at that time. And those two things are patience in suffering and a pursuit of holiness, or an avoidance of sin. Patience in suffering and a pursuit of holiness. So let's read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God stop there. We note the use of the word therefore, as we've mentioned therefore in other places. Beginning of verse 1, in truth, really verses 19 and 20 through 22 of chapter 3 are kind of a parenthetical phrase there. And chapter 4, verse 1 actually ties back directly to chapter 3, verse 18. Let me read you chapter 3, verse 18 and then verse 1 and you'll see what I mean. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jump to 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You see the connection? There's kind of that, that verse 18 and verse 1 come together. This verse 19 through 22 of chapter 3 are kind of a parenthetical phrase, you might say, or a kind of a side thought by Peter. So it's important we get that that picture as believers that we should be prepared to suffer as our Lord suffered. doesn't mean we have to, but we should be prepared. As he suffered for us, we should be willing to suffer for him. In fact, in light of his triumphing over suffering and death by his rising from the grave, we too should be willing to endure knowing that our greatest triumph over sin awaits us beyond the grave. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Consider what he went through on our behalf. Don't become weary. Don't become discouraged because he endured far more than we will ever endure in the way of suffering here on earth. And he did it for us, for our salvation. So what is meant by this phrase, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? That's kind of an interesting phrase. Well, let me put it this way. If your life is in jeopardy, if you're facing all kinds of trials and challenges, sinful practices and desires will not seem so important to you anymore. You know, when you're facing death, especially, your sinful your sin is not going to be important to you anymore. <laughs> Excuse me. More importantly, if we're followers of Christ, we should die to sin and self and live to God. First John chapter 3, verse 9. Simon Kistemacher made this comment on this phrase here in verse 1. Uh, he who has suffered in the flesh shall cease from sin. He says when the believer identifies completely with Christ, he knows that he is done with sin. The follower of Christ has abandoned a life of sin because the ruling power of sin has been broken. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 6 and verse 17 and 18 and see what Paul says on this. Romans six seventeen and 18. Verse 17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin in the past, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now we are not sinless by any means, even though we're Christians. Obviously, we all know that we're not sinless. But if we are Christians, we should sin less. Okay? We're not sinless, but we should sin less if we're Christians because we're living for Christ, because the Spirit of God is dwelling within us. <clears throat> and we should long for that day when we shall be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Jude 24. Boy, that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? That one day we will stand before him faultless, not in ourselves, but because we've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, because the Father looks upon us through Christ and sees us accepted In that beloved, but we shall be faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. We don't feel that today. We obviously battle daily with struggles against sin. But one day we shall be stand before God faultless because he has made us faultless through the cleansing blood of Christ. And actually, as John MacArthur points out in his notes, the perfect tense of this Greek word for ceased from sin, the perfect tense of that word ceased, emphasizes a permanent eternal state of being free from sin, which is what the death of a saint in Christ has achieved. Once we die in Christ, we have a for eternity a perfect sense of sinlessness, because we are once again with Christ, and our sins have been taken away. Now Peter goes on to say in verse two that since this is all true, since it's true, again, how shall we live? Faith in Christ and an abiding love for him kills the love of sin and inflames a love For holiness, that we might please Him. Now that we are sons of God through faith in Christ, God's will should be the determining factor in all of our life. That should be what it drives us to live. Instead of thirsting for sin, we should be thirsting after God. Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2 As the deer pants after the water brooks, so thirst my soul after you, O God. Well, we need to take that to heart and think about it. Am I thirsting after God or am I thirsting after the world? You know what, What's really driving my spiritual thirst in particular? What are we thirsting after? Our time here on earth is limited, and whatever our days and years that we have left should be dedicated to service to God and not the lust of men, Peter's telling us here. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, John says, for all that is in the world, and this is a familiar, familiar text, I'm sure, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. The world is passing away. The the sinful world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So what is our challenge? We are to live eternally, beloved. Live eternally. Live with eternity in mind. So let's move on now to the next few verses. uh, Verses three through, through six. And we'll look at these under the title of leaving the past behind, leaving the past behind. He's already spoken about this a little bit. But this should be our goal as Christians, leaving the past behind and looking forward to that race before us. Peter reminds us, that, <clears throat> us all that we are new creatures in Christ and we have nothing in our past to boast about. We don't boast about our past before we became a Christian. Rather, we boast in, the, in Christ and in his mercy towards us. Let's read verses 3 through 6 and see what Peter has to say. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, we th- they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according the Spirit of God. And here, Peter loves to throw in these kind of oddball texts that really get you thinking. We'll get to that in just a minute. It may be true that many of us were brought up in Christian homes, maybe even godly homes, at least homes that had godly standards. So that we were kept from our, in our lives before we be, actually became to Christ, uh, kept from wanton sin or, or severe you know, pursuits of pleasure that would drag us into the dregs of society. However, that doesn't mean that we are innocent of evil desires or outbursts of rebellion, or or sinfulness in any sense. The scripture is clear that all have sinned, right, and come short of the glory of God. So we can't look back in the past and say, well, I was perfect, you know, I was a perfect child before I became a Christian, so it's just, you know, continuing on the same path. We all admit that's not true. And while we may have been restrained from committing sin outwardly in the past, because we grew up in a Christian home, we still uh, are condemned in our hearts because of our sin. It would appear from the context that Peter is speaking primarily to those who were Gentiles, in other words, pagans, uh, before coming to faith in Christ. But the point is the same, where once they did those things without any guilt, without any shame, without any concern for what people thought of them, especially without not caring what God thought of them, now they must shed those sinful habits, and in doing so, they will seem odd to their former friends who engaged in this riotous lifestyle before In a world of sin, we as Christians should be strangers. We really should be strangers. We shouldn't kind of fit in and look like everybody else, act like everybody else, sound like everybody else. We should be strangers. 1 Corinthians 6.11, but such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And there's a couple other texts you could look up. I won't read them right now. Ephesians 2, 2 through 3 and Titus 3 through 3. Is this light causing any problems? Okay, good. <laughs> Lastly, in this section, we come to verse 6, another one of these wing little verses that Peter likes to throw in. can be a little hard to understand, again, unless you look at the context. You have to keep things in context. A brief look at the beginning of verse 6 might make one think that Peter was referring back to verse 5 when he says, For this reason. For this reason? Oh, he must be referring back to the thought before. However, as one commentator explained, the connection for, along with the phrase, this is the reason, does not explain the cause. The clause before that Christ will judge the living and the dead. That's not an explanation for that clause. To be precise, the Greek for for here points forward, this Greek word that they use for for, points forward to the so that clause in the last half of verse 6. So verse 6, it would make more sense if we were to read it, it would be like this. So that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but alive according to God in the spirit. The gospel was preached also to those who are now dead. Let me read that again. So that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but alive according to God in the spirit. The gospel was preached also to those who are now dead. You see the difference? Remember we have been talking here about suffering for good as believers and how we need to look beyond it to our eternal hope in Christ. Well, Peter is saying that Christians in the past had the gospel preached to them, and though they were judged or persecuted even to death by men, yet they are alive by God's spirit and by God's grace in their spirit. So, in fact, what Peter has given to us, as I put up here on the board, is what's called a perfectly balanced Semitic parallelism. That's what we have. And I'll look at this. We won't spend a lot of time on it, but I'll just try and explain it to you as quickly as I can. Important parallels. First of all, you know the difference between they might be judged and live. Okay? What Peter's contrasting here is the difference between what happened to those who trusted in Christ in the past and they're now dead and what they now have in Christ. Okay? In the past, they were judged by men. They were criticized by men. They were persecuted by men. But now they live. They have eternal life. Though those saints were judged unworthy of life by men and even put to death, yet they have eternal life now. Okay? They once were judged by men but now they have life. Leads to the second contrast, which is pretty should be pretty obvious, according to men and according to God. Simon Kistemacher makes this comment. He said the adversaries of Christian martyrs were of the opinion that, that by punishing believers, perhaps even to the point of death, they were defeating the Christians. But they did not know or understand that in God's sight believers continue to live in the spirit. And that's relations 219. And this leads us to that final comparison between the body and the spirit. And to do that, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verses 9 and 10. Romans 8, 9, and 10. Paul kind of helps to explain this. Romans 8, 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his being in the body will not save you you have to be in the spirit you have to be saved by god's grace through the spirit working in you so that's the the parallel the semitic parallel comparing those who were judged according to man but according to god they are they have life they have eternal life and they are in the spirit whereas once they were in the body This leads us to our last section we'll look at in this particular study tonight, and that is in verses 7 through 11. And I've entitled this particular section, Redeeming the Time by Serving Others and Glorifying God. Redeeming the Time by Serving Others and Glorifying God. Now, Peter begins this paragraph with another one of these if-then statements I've mentioned. So let's begin there at verse 7 of our text. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious. And watchful in your prayers, and above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. be hospitable to one another without grumbling as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which with God supplies, and in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong glory and and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> you think think Peter was finishing up his work at that time, but he's, he's got more to say. And we'll look at that next week. So Peter's encouraging his readers and us to live their lives with eternity in mind. Okay, that's the goal here. We should live in fervent anticipation of the second coming of Christ. And if we think about it, the frequent references to the eminence of Christ's return is based upon the teaching that the last days began at the incarnation, right? That was really the last days began at the incarnation, or you might, some would say, at the time of the resurrection. But in any case, they began with the end of of, uh, Jesus's life. That began the new days, the last days, and we have been in them ever since. It hasn't changed. Let's look at a few of those statements here from the New Testament writers. I won't have you look them up. I'll just read them to you. These are multiple statements on we're in the last times, we're in the last days. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. And this do, knowing the time, that now is high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Have you ever thought about that? That as you go through your days, that you're one day closer, one day closer to Christ's coming. Or, obviously, in some cases, you might be entered into eternally because you die before he comes. But if you don't, you're one day closer to his coming. We're all one day closer to his coming. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. That's a quote, actually, from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then 1 John 2, 18. Little children, this is the last hour. So we need to keep that sense of urgency, of anticipation that Christ is coming. He is coming. He will come. He will not fail to come. And Peter has pointed out to Pointed to victory over suffering via death. But now he's also pointing the victory can come from the second coming of Christ as well. So either case, if you happen to die in the faith, you have victory. But if Christ comes, you have victory because you're in him. So you might say, well, he certainly didn't come in the lifetime of Peter, did he? I mean, Peter's and all these writers and pauls they didn't come in their lifetime. So why should we expect him now? In fact, that's a, a comment you might say that you can look uh, that Peter's answering in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. We'll look at that when we get there. But you may have missed the point if that's what you're thinking. Well, he hasn't come yet. Why is he, why is he going to come? His, his point, Peter's point, is that whether they enter eternity via death through suffering or the return of Christ, they should conduct themselves accordingly so that they would not be ashamed when they see him face to face. The heart of a Christian should be set on things above, upon heaven. Could Christ come soon? He certainly could. He can come anytime he wants. Just remember that though God is is not bound by time as we are, and we get caught up in our time, we get caught up in our days, our calendars, God's not bound by time. Psalm 90, verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight is but as yesterday when it is past and as a watch in the night.
1: You know, I think
0: I can say for certainty looking around here tonight, and really if our whole congregation was here, that a hundred years from now, everyone in this room is going to be in eternity in one place or the other, right? In fact, I could probably say in seventy-five years, most of us will be gone. Addie, Hattie and Abigail, maybe you'll be hanging around, but seventy-five years from now, you'd be old girls. <laughs> even Stanley would be kind of old seventy-five years from now. But in any case, to God, those years are a speck on the timeline of history and even less when compared to eternity. So in our case, when we think of you know Christ is coming, yes, it might seem like decades, even a century, but In anticipation, we should be looking to it regardless of when it comes, knowing that if we die beforehand, we go to be with him. If we're here when he comes, we go to be with him because we are in Christ. And that should be joy to us, uh, encouragement to us. So with that fact in mind, that Christ could be coming at any time, how then shall we live? Gee, that's a good question. Sounds like a good book title, doesn't it, Lance? How then shall we live? Uh, I think I know of a guy who wrote a book like that. Peter tells us that we should be serious we should be sober. In fact, the Greek word is Sophroneo," which means to be a sound mind, to be of a sound mind, to be not be foolish and reckless and careless, but to be of a sound mind, be thinking clearly. We're not swept up in emotions, in other words, uh, but we're to keep things in perspective. In fact, turn with me to First uh, Thessalonians chapter five, First Thessalonians chapter five, and verses six to eight. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And you can go on from there. For God does not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation from our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him and therefore comfort one another with these words. We have that blessed hope in Christ. We should be encouraged to look to him and to live for him. We as God's people are not to panic over economic crises or political crises or anything else. We need to keep things in perspective, even persecution, even suffering, as Peter is saying here. We need to keep things in perspective and we need to be characterized by reason, by wisdom, by confidence in the sovereign God who works all things in the, in, over the council His will. Trust in his providence and trust in the wisdom of God that he's in control. We don't need to panic. We are to be watchful in prayer. The Greek word here is, for watchful really means to be sober or to be very calm. In other words, you're trusting in God. You're sober. You're not worried. You're not excited. You're not upset but you have a confidence that God's in control. The Puritan Robert Layton said this, prayer eases the soul in times of distress when it is oppressed with grief and fears, but much more, it gives those griefs and fears vent, emptying them into the heart of God. He references Ephesians 6.18 and Colossians 4.2. So Peter moves on here in verse 8 to return to his theme of love for the brethren, in which he's taken up in chapter 3, verse 8. Paul calls love the fulfillment of the law in Romans thirteen ten, and indeed to sum up these two great commandments, it's simply to say love God and love your neighbor. Right when you cut right down to it, it's love God and love your neighbor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our God, is, our love for God should compel us to live for Him. Second Corinthians five fourteen. The love of Christ compels us, and our love for our fellow saints causes us to look beyond their faults. Love will cover a multitude of sins is quoted from Proverbs 10:12. And John MacArthur said, it is the nature of true spiritual love, whether from God to man or as Christian to Christian to cover sins. Romans 5:8. 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our fellow believers are sinners saved by God's grace. But if God could die for us, and for them, then we certainly can be compassionate towards one another and forgiving. The mutual love of Christians is not natural, obviously, because we have personality conflicts and different things, but spiritual. Our love has to be spiritual, not physical, in the sense that we're driven by our desires. It is the direct result of our supernatural union with Christ. That's how we love one another. The Lord Jesus sent his spirit into our hearts and minds in love to God and to each other. And as one author put it, in loving our brothers in a spiritual Christian way, we love God because they are his people too. And how is that love manifested? Well, one clear way and one that was very common in Peter's day including opening, including opening, includes opening your home and caring for needy Christians. That was very common in those days, especially early on when there was much persecution, when people lost their jobs or kicked out of the synagogue. So there's a need for loving one another. Whether it's hosting a traveling preacher, which we, as we read in some of the epistles they did, or hosting a church, or just inviting a needy family into, your, into the church for dinner, we should show hospitality. And note the words without grumbling, without being, oh, we have to host them again, we have to invite those people out when I really wanted to go home and take a nap. No, we are to host people out of love for them and desire to help them. In fact, one who is given to hospitality uh, may find themselves entertaining unusual company. We're told in Hebrews 13:2, "Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels, unaware." Romans 12:13 says we are to be distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. Given to hospitality. Of course, we know from Paul's teaching in First Timothy and Titus that hospitality is one of the qualifications for elders in the church. So we're under the gun, guys. <laughs> um, but finally, let's look at verses 10 and 11, okay? Just real close. Peter admonishes us to use the gifts given to us by God for the benefit of others. Now, that should sound pretty familiar because we just studied the gifts and note these gifts or abilities are from God. They are manifestations of his grace. And as we talked about in our study on spiritual gifts, we as believers cannot create them, we cannot claim them, nor do we earn them, nor do we deserve them. But they are to be used solely in the interest of God's kingdom for his glory and for the edification of of one another. We are to be good stewards of those gifts, use them wisely, which means we must manage them and we're to be accountable to the master who gave them to us. So, as we conclude our study today, let's look at the latter parts of verse 11 here. Let me read verse 11 again. If anyone speaks, let us speak at the oracles of God. Let him, when ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. And remember, I told you that Peter's comparing to Paul's text early on there peter is using just kind of this quick summary He says you either have a ministry of speaking or you have a minister of serving so that was kind of the way he he condensed everything down that way going on if anyone ministers let him do with the ability which god supplies that in all things in all things god may be glorified through jesus christ to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever amen as Peter tells us, we are to speak or minister not with a self-serving manner or not in a careless way, but consider that we are proclaiming the very, if we're speaking, we are to minister with as though we're speaking the very oracles of God, the very words of God. If we're ministering, if we're speaking, if we're preaching and teaching, we're handling God's word. We're not just giving out you know uh, platitudes and nice sounding things that sound good or poems or whatever. We're proclaiming God's word, so we need to be careful that we're doing it wisely. Obviously, that's nothing to be you know, careless about or trifle about. If we minister, we're not to do it in our own strength or our own technique or our own desires, but we're to do it dependent upon the grace of God and the ability he has given us. And why is that important? Well, because whatever we do is to be done so that God gets the glory in everything through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's why we're to do it that way. Because God supplies our every need, he alone deserves the praise for what we accomplish by his grace. As Paul stated in Romans eleven thirty-six, 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Forever. In closing, turn with me to Jude chapter, uh, verse 24 and 25. Jude, verse 24 and 25. We'll read those two together here. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Beloved, be sure that you are always keeping God's glory in mind, whatever you do and however you do it, and for the good of the body of Christ. Look beyond the present trials that Peter is talking about to the glory that awaits us in Christ. And let's pray.